News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. There is a feeling that we're kind of waiting to see what kind of an impact Omicron will have here in BC. We know the Delta variant remains the dominant one, and that caused a lot of problems for us in this province. But let's check in elsewhere and see how this newer variant is up impacting people. Joining us now is Shane Woodford, freelancer in Denmark, former CKNW reporter. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. It sounds like Omicron is having quite an impact over there. Yeah, that's a, that's an understatement. This thing is blowing Delta out of the water. It has been uh, an unbelievable thing to watch. Uh, to give people a sense of what's going on here, Simi, we saw the first two cases confirmed in Denmark on November the 26th. Uh, 17 days have passed since, and Omicron looks to become the dominant COVID strain uh, by as early as tomorrow and no later than Wednesday. Uh, it has done in a matter of days what took the Alpha and the Delta variant weeks and weeks and weeks to do. Wow. So what has that meant for hospitalizations? Yeah, so we've had uh, about 2,471 confirmed variant cases in the last 17 days. Uh, as of the last update, we're waiting for today's, they haven't published it yet, but as of yesterday's update, there was 27 people in hospital. Uh, the prognosis so far, and I have to couch this by saying that we're in our early days here, Simi, but there's a lot about this variant that we don't know yet, and we're going on sort of what the studies and what the data from different places uh, is sort of leaning towards, and there's the whole thing about it's maybe not as severe uh, as some of the other strains, uh, maybe hasn't caused uh, as many hospitalizations uh, per capita, but uh, the trick here, Simi, is what experts here are warning about is that the RO, the infection rate of Omicron, is through the roof. It is about uh, 3.5 to 3.7, so we're more than double Delta. So uh, maybe it has less severe cases. Maybe uh, 1% of those cases end up in hospital. But if the overall case number uh, is that much more massive than what Delta pulled down, uh, then the math tells you that we're in for a tough time. And in right. fact, authorities here are warning that uh, come January, uh, Denmark, Norway, Finland, Sweden, they're all saying that we could be facing quite a crunch in the hospital system. And in fact, is under pressure now. And so what kind of impact is that having among children? I understand that's a big concern. Yeah, we don't know the Omicron variant among children uh, in Denmark yet. We do have uh, a big concern among children generally. The Delta wave, uh, well, I guess the Omicron variant has come at the absolute worst time here. So, I mean, we're in a Delta-driven wave, which is going to change this week. But uh, right now it is a Delta-driven wave, and we're seeing record COVID numbers uh, week after week. Just today they posted over 7,000 new infections reported today, which is a record high number. And the one age group that is seeing the most infection activity is those six years old to 11 years old in Denmark. We're seeing six, 7,000 uh, infections in that age group every seven days. Uh, and we have, again, yet to see the Omicron sort of impact on that and the population as a whole. That'll play out in the weeks ahead. But uh, what Denmark has done is they've instituted uh, weekly testing in all primary schools. And then uh, just a couple of days ago, the prime minister said, OK, listen, that things are bad and we're sending all the kids home effective Wednesday, which is about three days earlier uh, than their usual Christmas break would have started. And the big question mark is they want them back in school January 5th. But uh, that hangs entirely in what the situation is going to be like then. And it is not pretty now. Boy, okay. So then does that mean there's going to be a change in restrictions like Shane? How are people taking this? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the concern here is, is high, Simi, and uh, people uh, are looking to the government to do something. Now, as, as the last time you and I talked, I believe that uh, Denmark had shed all the restrictions. We'd returned to quote-unquote normal life. Uh, yes. The wheels fell entirely off of that about uh, two, two and a half weeks ago. And then as of about four or five days ago, they came down and levied a whole bunch more restrictions. So the COVID passport uh, is back in Denmark for a variety of functions. Uh, we have the mask mandate is now returned in grocery stores, buses, stores, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's caps and how many people can gather, uh, events uh, involving people milling around and standing over uh, 50 or so are now been totally banned. And the, the sense is that things are still getting worse. Uh, and even money has it that we'll see even more restrictions possibly in the days and weeks ahead. Okay, that's so interesting then. So you had removed the mask mandate for everything because here in BC, we still have all that. Yeah, no, we had taken it all down. We were little, like, I kid you not, it was like pre-pandemic life here. There wasn't a restriction in sight. I could go into a store. I could go to a concert. Uh, you could do everything as it was before. And that, frankly, has had a disastrous effect. Uh, when officials took down the restrictions to me, they were honest enough to say, hey, listen, uh, when the fall arrives, it's going to be colder. We're going to be moving inside. That's a lot more uh, dangerous when the COVID variant is wandering around because it spreads that much easily. So we are going to see a wave in the fall. Uh, that wave arrived much sooner and a much, much steeper curve than they anticipated. So when we started seeing cases skyrocket up, officials here uh, were actually pretty, pretty honest in their in their assessments in the, in the last televised news conference here and said, listen, this has happened uh, much harder impact and much faster than we had anticipated. And so now we're in, uh, I would think it's fair to say, we're in some pretty serious trouble. Your hospitalizations are mounting into record, or not quite record, but we're seeing it in territory we haven't seen in a year yeah. Uh, record high infection levels, all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, it is not a pretty situation in Denmark right now. Is that what it is like? Would you say uh, across the European Union? Like what is it like elsewhere? Yeah, we're seeing exactly the same thing uh, in Norway and in Finland. Uh, we have a looser sense of what's going on in Sweden because they don't test nearly as much as the other three Nordic countries do. Uh, the United Kingdom hit the panic button yesterday uh, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson there said that a tidal wave of Omicron is coming. They're seeing basically the same rate as Denmark where the number of cases is doubling about every two, two and a half days. Uh, and their uh, infections are going up, their hospitalizations are going up, their fatalities are going up. Uh, so they are, and a number of other European countries, including Denmark, uh, have taken all the stops out to try and get booster doses hammered home as fast as humanly possible because the data seems to point out uh, that two doses of vaccine doesn't do much for uh, symptomatic disease. It protects against severe cases of illness and, of course, hospitalization to right. a much greater degree, but not, uh, not so much infection. What does this mean for Christmas gathering? Yeah, we haven't had anything specific on that other than to kind of be cautious. It advises you to not have an unvaccinated person over uh, when you're gathering for Christmas and to get tests beforehand and, and that kind of thing. Um, but we haven't had anything saying don't do it. But um, as you and I talked to me, my whole family is recovering from COVID. So uh, it is hitting everywhere and it does not matter if you're vaccinated anymore. And the numbers are, are staggering. 74% of Omicron cases to date, some are among those who are fully vaccinated. Oh, well, 74%. That's crazy. Yeah. And matter of fact, it's such a, a high rate that epidemiologists are here 
uh, are banding about one theory that Omicron may in fact be so infectious and may hit us so hard and infect so many people, unvaccinated, vaccinated, people uh, who have had a previous infection, that it may in fact on its own uh, sort of induce a large-scale herd-like immunity and move us from a pandemic to an endemic. But whether that happens or not is anyone's guess. Huh. So interesting. All right, well, Shane, thank you very much for the update. Yeah, I appreciate it. You guys stay safe. It's you too. And take care. Hope your family's feeling better. That's Shane Woodford, a freelancer in Denmark, of course, former CKNW reporter, talking about the impact of the Omicron variant is happening in Denmark and other European Union countries, and it does not sound good. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is a big day in Ottawa. We will soon hear what is expected to be an apology that was promised to survivors and victims of sexual misconduct in the Canadian forces. This was promised to them more than two years ago. Let's find out more about what's expected to happen today. Amanda Connolly joins us now, our Global News National Online Journalist. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So how is this going to unfold? So this is a, certainly a long-awaited day for so many Canadians who have been uh, victims and survivors of sexual misconduct in the military. We know this will unfold virtually. It will be a live-streamed uh, statement of apology. And we're going to see this coming from Defence Minister Anita Anand, as well as Chief of the Defence Staff, General Wayne Eyre, and the Deputy Minister of the Department of National Defence, who is Jody Thomas. And so those three people really are the, the most senior folks uh, with authority over the military here. One notable absence, of course, we will not see this apology coming from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, which had been a an urging from some advocates, um, but that's, that, that certainly will not be the case today. And so we're looking for a statement today, an apology that really will uh, acknowledge uh, what the, the victims and the survivors here have been through who've experienced sexual misconduct in the military. Okay. And you mentioned how long it has taken to get to this point. Amanda, what have been the delays? Like, what do we know about that? Yeah, that's that's been a difficult question to to sort through. We've certainly asked that question a number of times. Uh, did not get clear answers for quite a while. The last that we've heard from the Department of National Defense was that this was um, this this comes down to them having hoped to be able to do this apology in person. Uh, they have been waiting throughout COVID for a chance uh, to be able to have people come together to offer this apology. That, of course, is not possible with rising case counts across the country. Um, going up the way that they are at the moment right now. And so they did decide to move ahead with this virtually in light of those concerns. But again, uh, certainly we saw encouragements from the military over the weekend here to advise people who are going to be watching this that this might be a difficult apology to hear. It might bring up a lot of emotions and a lot of feelings for people and to really encourage uh, everyone who might need it to try and have supports in place for them uh, to process this today. Right, because this was um, something that I know the previous defense minister had been criticized, right, for not getting done. Yes, he absolutely had been. Uh, former Defense Minister uh, Harjit Sajjan had faced a lot of criticism, not just for this, but really broadly for his handling of the military sexual misconduct crisis writ large. Um, Anita Anand, of course, who came in, uh, was newly named to the portfolio this fall. Uh, she has been moving quickly on a number of different files to uh, implement some changes here. Again, the the apology and getting this done um, comes quickly after she was appointed here. And so uh, it is, I think, for a lot of a lot of survivors and victims here, They've said significant to see a political representative 
taking part in this, mainly because uh, it, it expresses that sense to them, I believe, of um, government's recognition and kind of accountability, in a sense, for some of the decisions that have been taken to not implement fully recommendations that um, experts have said would have or could have um, perhaps limited some of the impact of sexual misconduct and even worked to, to get ahead at, at solving the problem. All right, lots to come today then. Amanda, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, how can you have someone chair the police board and at the same time be facing a charge of public mischief? That is the situation in the city of Surrey as of this morning. Hey, you got to wonder, isn't that a conflict? This all stems from the situation back in September when Mayor Doug McCallum claimed that he had been assaulted by people who had gathered to collect petition signatures to keep the RCMP in Surrey. Now, he went on TV and said this. He went on Global News and said this. And so when police started digging, they turned everything over to a special prosecutor. So the RCMP were not involved in this. It was a special prosecutor. And on Friday, we found out that special prosecutor has now recommended a charge of public mischief against the mayor. The mayor has clammed up on this, said he's not saying anything. But that kind of leaves, I know, a lot of Surrey residents with this question of, well, what can you actually do about this, right? Joining us now is Dr. Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Good morning, Hamish. Good morning, Simi. Now, have we seen a situation like this before? (laughs) Yes, I think we have. Um, And, you know, many years ago, of course, we had uh, Gordon Campbell, the Premier of British Columbia, charged with drunk driving when he was on holiday in Hawaii. Uh, We had a mayor, I believe, in Port Coquitlam, charged with quite serious crimes. Uh, So this does happen from from time to time, and there are always very difficult situations to deal with. And I, I think the thing that we have to remember, of course, is that Doug McCallum is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Right. And so... When we saw the, the Port Coquitlam case as well, I think it was Port Moody, where you see a Port. similar situation. Um, what What is the prop? Is there a procedure, though, for that? Is there something that that elected person should do while this is being dealt with? As far as I know, there's nothing legally required. I think we're dealing in the realm of ethics and morality. What's the right thing to do here, not what is the legal requirement here? And I think because what Doug McCallum is facing is a charge that is related very much to the context of his job. It's not like the Gordon Campbell situation, which was purely a private matter. It didn't look good for Gordon Campbell. The optics were terrible, but it was a private matter. He was on holiday and had a lapse of judgment, and he said he would deal with it. In this case, we've got the mayor who got into some kind of altercation with a citizen over the leading public policy issue in the city. This was a job-related incident, and that, I think, makes it different and I think does put more onus on the mayor to step aside while the issue is being uh, resolved. Right, but there's no really mechanism to make that happen, is there? There isn't. I, I do believe that someone is, is launching a code of conduct complaint. There may be other things buried deep within the Local Government Act or the Community Charter. But these things take months to play out. And, of course, we've got the election coming up in, in the fall. So I think if anything is going to happen, it'll be brought to bear by political pressure. Right. OK, political pressure. Plus, there is an election happening uh, you know, next year. That's right. And uh, the mayor insists not only that he wants to stay on, but that he wants to run again. You know, what else I find interesting about this, Hamish, is that clearly the mayor has decided he's not going to say anything about this. Now, that's an interesting technique, right? Because I would think that Surrey (laughs) residents want to hear from their mayor on this. 
I don't know who his advisors are, but he does seem to think that he can just kind of ride this thing out. That's right. And that's a very common refrain. This is a matter now before the courts, so I can't say anything. And uh, his lawyers are surely telling him not to say anything as as well. So I think really what's going to happen is it's going to be behind the scenes. Um, he does have a, a, it's not quite a party, but he has a team on city council. Those people presumably want to get elected again in the fall. And they may be getting to look at the mayor as a liability rather than an asset. He was an asset in the last election when he ran on those popular campaign platform of, of Surrey's own police force, as well as extending the SkyTrain to Langley. But now he's been quite controversial, obviously, quite polarizing, and, and his colleagues on city council may no longer view him as an asset. So that might be one thing. The other thing I would be wondering about behind the scenes are his relationships with senior managers in City Hall. I think he's putting them in a very difficult position, asking them to obviously continue doing their work and reporting to him. And so we'll see in the coming days or weeks um, if if that pressure builds up behind the scenes, people mm-hmm. whispering in his ear that perhaps he should step aside. Hamish, aren't politicians just so endlessly fascinating, though? Because they they have this technique that they think works for them, right? And I'm sure that Doug McCallum or Mayor McCallum thinks that this has worked for him in the past, the way he's treating the situation. And that's great, except it works for them, it works for them until it suddenly doesn't work for them anymore, right? Yeah. Well, politicians, they like to be in the public eye. Um, they think they can make a difference. They're ambitious. They're a bit egotistical. And so, yes, they, they will continue to fight through this. And I'm sure Doug McCallum will try and turn this to his advantage. Look, I went to City Hall to shake things up. There was going to be blowback in. And here it is. And and some people, I think, will, will buy that and continue to support him. I think this incident will only further polarize the politics of Surrey. Oh, you're, that's so interesting. So you think he might actually or could potentially use this as almost like a, a campaign slogan or a campaign attitude? He, yeah, if he wants to hang on, that's, that's what he could well do. Boy, interesting times in Surrey. So does this tell you, like, should, do we need to change? Does there need to be a procedure, do you think, in place for dealing with these kinds of situations? Because we now have had two, right, in the last five years of local municipal politicians facing some kind of charge. And, you know, there needs to be a procedure in place for how that gets resolved. Yes, well, the cities themselves could look at this within their own codes of conduct, but it really is incumbent upon the provincial government to pick this up and make amendments to the BC Community Charter or the Local Governments Act to ensure that we always have people of integrity serving in our local city governments. Such interesting times. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. You're welcome, Simi. That is Dr. Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science, University of the Fraser Valley, talking about the situation in Surrey. You've got, you know, the mayor, Doug McCallum, who is the chair of the police board, which in effect, you know, is in charge of the Surrey Police Service. And you've got this whole transition happening. So, you know, he is kind of looking after law enforcement there in that role. And at the same time, now facing a public mischief charge. And, you know, there's been some thought that maybe he should just recuse himself for a little while until these charges are resolved or whatever it is happens, and then he can go back to that. But he has steadfastly refused to talk about this. He put out a statement saying that, as Hamish pointed out, that as this is now before the courts, he won't be saying anything. But then he also referenced, you know, the transition from the RCMP to Surrey Police, where we know, just to be clear, this was a special prosecutor that did this. This was not the RCMP that did this. But man, what it comes down to, Surrey residents, how does this make you feel about what's going on in your city? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. What do you think? 
should happen here? What is the right thing to do? Do you think, okay, the mayor can tough this out. Let him see how this works, how it plays out. Or should he recuse himself, you know, until the situation is resolved? Send me at tknw.com. You can call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Devastating tornadoes hit the state of Kentucky over the weekend in the U.S. Dozens of people have been killed. More expected, unfortunately, to be added to that list. But let's find out what it is like there right now. Joining us is Reggie Giacchini, our global news correspondent, normally in Washington, D.C. But Reggie, where are you right now? We are in Mayfield, uh, Kentucky, and it is uh, one of the worst disaster zones that I have seen uh, from anything that I have covered. Um, the ground is strewn with with power lines and trees and the belongings of, of people whose homes don't exist anymore. And it's just fragments of their lives that now scatter the ground. What do we know about the size of this tornado and what it impacted? So what we understand is that this could potentially be a tornado for the history books, one of the strongest, if not the strongest, to ever touch down in the U.S. We understand that it was dozens and dozens of kilometers wide, but stayed on the ground for nearly 325 kilometers across at least five states. The problem with that is that 300 kilometers alone was just in Kentucky. And you can see that city after city after city when you're driving. You can see either uh, 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 barns and farms that have been blown apart. Here in Mayfield, we can see that half of the city has been simply decimated about an hour east from here in Dawson Spring, Kentucky. The mayor says 75% of the town is completely gone. And I understand that, that many of the deaths right now are all focused kind of in one area. They were people who were working at this candle factory. Yeah, it, it, this candle factory in Mayfield, Kentucky, was the town's largest employer. There were dozens upon dozens of people in there. It was just around shift change when this tornado came through. It was late at night. Uh, oftentimes, these big factories don't have basements. They don't have kind of locked away interior sections. Uh, and they only had upwards of 11 minutes warning that this tornado was coming through. The roof collapsed and dozens of people were killed. We understand dozens of people are still missing. This could potentially be the nexus of the loss of life just in this city. Oh, wow. Okay, so is the cleanup, is that what's underway right now? Are they still searching for people? I mean, look, this is going to be a task that takes months, if not years, to be able to deal with. The, just the sheer amount of devastation in Mayfield alone, where we're seeing piles that are starting to be moved away with heavy equipment, kind of leaving behind additional piles uh, of raw materials and materials that are just kind of blocking access to everything. This is going to take a long time. The state uh, has uh, local level assistance, federal level assistance is here, uh, but it could be months, if not years, before the act of getting everything back to where it once was is is kind of you know playing out in front of everybody this is not something that's going to take place overnight especially when you have such a massive swath of damage that's cut uh, that's cut across so many different states uh all governors are working together with each other it's a hard one for kentucky's governor he announced yesterday that he actually lost family members in this storm as he actively tried to guide through and lead the rest of his state who's dealing with the same thing oh man okay and and there was also like an amazon factory involved here too it sounds like everybody was at work and there wasn't a lot of warning for people. 
Yeah, and look, a lot of times we see when these tornadoes come through, it happens at night, and oftentimes the you know the busiest areas in some of these cities are inside the factories. And this was a tornado, part of this system that came through in southern Illinois at that Amazon factory. At least six people, possibly seven people, were killed uh, when a part of that factory, which was only five years old, uh, was blown apart by the wind. We've had a statement out from Amazon saying that their hearts are with the victims and the families, uh, and and it just goes to show that these tornadoes do not discriminate. They do do not care where they touch down. The death toll right now, standing around 49, that's likely going to go up. The youngest victims were three and five years old in parts of Kentucky and Arkansas. Oh, Reggie, thank you very much for the update, though. Thank you. It's Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Normally Washington correspondent, but in Kentucky to give us an update on just how devastating the tornadoes are there. Right about now, there has been an update as well from the governor of Kentucky who says they're just confirming at this point that 64 people are dead from those weekend tornadoes. And his quote, though, undoubtedly, he says, there will be more. And you just look at those pictures and you think, unbelievable amount of devastation there. We'll continue to have your updates on that situation. Uh, on a bit of a hockey note, this is interesting as well this morning. We've been talking about the impact of the Omicron variant and what it's been having. And we'll talk more about that later in the show when we have um, representatives from the University of Victoria on talk about the measures that they are taking. They're changing all exams to online exams starting today. Calgary Flames this morning announcing their next three games are being postponed. They've got six players and one staff member who have entered the NHL's COVID-19 protocol. Uh, That is a lot of players. They don't want to cross the border. One of their games was supposed to be in Chicago. So they're saying, you know what, then what if they, you know, had more positive tests there? People have to quarantine. They'd have border problems. So essentially, all seven members of the team entered the protocol within the same 24-hour window. They have closed their training facilities. And so the next three games are being postponed for the Calgary Flames. It's not a good sign for what's going on out there. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, should we be thinking about maybe adjusting some of our restrictions over concerns about the Omicron variant? Those concerns are rising. We have heard, and we'll be talking more about it later, for instance, that the University of Victoria is cancelling all in-person exams today, moving everything online. That's last-minute notice for a lot of students who've been studying hard, I'm sure. But that's because of a rising number of COVID cases on the island. So is this a sign of things to come? Should we be thinking more province-wide about this? Well, joining us now, as always, the person we turn to for these questions, Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. We've been checking in with you every week during this Omicron variant situation. So what have you learned in the last week about this? Well, we've learned a lot about Omicron, but what we're learning today from the information from the University of Victoria and other places is we still live in COVID world. We need to follow the rules. And this is what happens if you don't follow the rules. As in, so the rules that we have right now, do you think would be okay if we if everybody followed them strictly? Well, let's take a step back. What is being reported today is in the context of an outbreak at the University of Victoria that was reported a week ago that was linked to two specific off-campus activities in two specific faculties. So these are two large-scale indoor events that occurred, not sanctioned by the university, not consistent with current 
public health rules and that led to outbreaks. And this has since spread. So this is what happens if you don't take COVID seriously and think that the public health regulations that are in place don't apply to you. So is that a warning for the rest of us, do you think? Like, pay attention. It's cautionary. There are still rules in place. It isn't the old normal. It is the new normal. Of course, go get vaccinated if you haven't been vaccinated. Of course, go get your booster if it's your turn. And your turn hopefully will come sooner than what seems to be the norm right now, at least in British Columbia. But even if you do all of those things, please be very careful. Have a mask at the ready. Don't get together indoors, especially in settings where a vaccination passport is not in place. So I think we just need to remember how to do this right. Is That's a good point then. Do you feel that we need a reminder that perhaps people that we have gotten a bit lax? It's, absolutely. I think this is a time for a reminder, especially during the holiday season. It tugs at our heartstrings. We want to get together like we used to. We want to give the unvaccinated among us a free pass, let's say, and and say, yes, it's okay for you to come over. And we really need to have these hard conversations that it's probably a bit too early for that, especially with Omicron, especially with 10, 15 percent of the population unvaccinated, especially with those second doses that were given many months ago, beginning to wear off. 10 percent of people didn't respond to the vaccine in the first place. It adds up. So it's not We really still need to be careful. Do you think the message will change, Dr. Conway, from like health officials, from the public health officer? Are are we going to speed up anything in terms of booster shots, do you think, this week? Two things I'd I'd like to see happen right now is speed up the booster shots and make better use of the rapid test, especially the situation which seems to be happening in University of Victoria. Rapid tests would be so helpful in terms of identifying specific transmission networks and interrupting them. We need to understand that a negative test is not a license to not uh, adopt the public health regulations that are in place, not apply them. And a negative test or repeated rapid testing is not re- it's not a substitute for a vaccine. If we remember those things, rapid tests can be very useful. Right. And we know that some things have changed when it comes to religious services, but we're heading into a very busy time for many religious services. Uh, Should we be looking at being stricter there? I think we should be looking at being as strict as we need to be. I think vaccination passports are very helpful in in indoor environments. I think that uh, avoiding uh, larger gatherings is important, thinking of how to do this more safely. Um, We really do need to to have a careful look at not unwittingly having another outbreak of COVID, especially during the holiday season. What, in terms of what you've been learning about the variant then, do you still have questions? Like, what are you still waiting to hear more about? Um, We're pretty well convinced now that it doesn't cause as severe disease, although a death was reported today in the United Kingdom. There will be some but it looks as if it is less severe disease. It is probably more transmissible. Again, it's overtaking the United Kingdom and probably will do the same thing in Canada over time. And it's probably somewhat less susceptible to the vaccine. There were reports from a very reputable Chinese laboratory that came out over the weekend that suggest that. So we'll need to redouble our efforts to vaccinate and to provide 
boosters. It is not a huge game changer, but it certainly needs to inform public policy going forward. Right. We usually hear from health officials on Tuesday. So do you think that message is going to be altered at all this week? I would hope so. I think we need to come out and say everyone's going to get a booster at some point. We'll do it age-based, but we'll accelerate it in certain settings. Look, this is how we go through outbreaks in Whistler and in Prince Rupert. If we remember back to last spring, as we went out and we vaccinated everyone. Should we be doing the same thing in Victoria and the University of Victoria? So accelerate boosters. And let's let's look at how the rapid tests seem to have been useful in Eastern Canada and see if a lesson can be learned for British Columbia. All right. And what lesson do you would you like what would you like us all to take away then this week? I would like us I would like us all to if you're vaccinated, great. If you're up for your booster, go. If people around you are unvaccinated and thinking about it, have that talk with them. Remember that there are rules in place and you break them at your peril. We still live in COVID world. We can do so much more this year than last year. So embrace that, but not more. And let's be mindful of some of the other things that we could be doing, avoiding large indoor gatherings. And let's see if if rapid tests will be more widely available and if they are try to understand if they would be useful to you in your day-to-day activities. That's the thing, Dr. Conway. I think a lot of people would love to have the rapid test be more widely available, but then why aren't they? Well, there is some concern that people would interpret a negative test as a permission to avoid public health rules. It's saying that it confirmed that they're not infected. They aren't quite as sensitive, but they are quite quite good when used properly. But it isn't a, a reason to not adhere to public health regulations. Second, this is not a replacement for the vaccine. It isn't either or. I don't want to be vaccinated, so I'll just test myself every day. doesn't work that way. So if we avoid those pitfalls, what the rapid test would do is in an environment where we think COVID is spreading, test everybody quickly, get results within an hour, and try to understand where the virus is spreading and intervene more insightfully to limit its spread. That's how it's being used in Eastern Canada my sense it is that it would have the same usefulness here in British Columbia in specific settings, and we should look at that. Right, but BC seems to be hoarding all these tests and not really distributing them. Well, we've only used 10% of the supply that we have, so it isn't that we don't have the tests. But there's some concern that they are not sensitive enough. And in, in, in use in, the, in, in public, in, in many, many settings, they've shown to be very, very useful, very helpful in the way that I've just described. And then as long as we're sure that people aren't going to say, well, I refuse to be vaccinated, so I'll just test myself every day. I think that was another concern. But beyond that, I'm just, uh, I, I would hope that these issues could be addressed in a very transparent manner by Dr. Henry Minister Dix uh, as soon as possible. Well, we'll see what happens. Dr. Conway, thank you as always. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know how crowdfunding sites like GoFundMe, they step in and they try to help out folks in times of need. Well, they've actually just announced which city is the most generous city in Canada. I'm not going to give it away because you know what? I'm going to let our Raji Sohal do that, who joins us now. Good morning, Raji. 
Good morning, Simi. Yeah, we know that in times of crisis, we saw the floods, the heat dome that caused uh, the wildfires. And we saw how people came together to help one another. We know there's always Red Cross and all these uh, formal foundations to send money to. But crowdfunding sites, they seem to pop up as a first resource and the first place people go uh, when they want to donate somewhere immediately. And I think part of the attraction, Simi, to donate to these sites is because they're very personable. Like you see um, if it's a family affected by something, you you read a, a little blurb there by someone who's trying to, to help, who will give you like all these little details about the family and who they are and how this will help them. And so I think that those donate pages, when they're often run by a friend or family member of someone in need, it just feels like a more direct line, like you can make mm-hmm. a, a one-to-one difference. And one of the most popular crowdfunding sites that everyone's heard of, Go, GoFundMe, has named North Vancouver as the most generous oh. city in Canada. Yeah. I can't say I was very surprised. Um, the crowdfunding site uh, gave North Van residents that honor based upon the number of donations made to causes uh, on its site by population. So it's a population thing too, including one campaign for that raised, let's see here, 235000 was raised for a single mother who was affected uh, by an attack. You remember back when there was that random knife attack in Lynn Valley? Right. Yeah. So during that time, actually, Jackie McCarnan, she's a realtor in North Vancouver. She mobilized really quickly to set up a GoFundMe to help folks that were affected in that awful attack. But prior to the GoFundMe, and this is why I'm not surprised about North Van getting this acknowledgement, prior to the GoFundMe, Jackie had already established a nonprofit with her daughters during the pandemic. It's called North Vancouver Cares, North Van Cares. And it's like a no bureaucracy Facebook page to help people very quickly, like really nimble. And she amassed 3,700 people on it during uh, the pandemic. And I asked Jackie if she was surprised to hear that North Van was acknowledged for being the most generous. She wasn't very surprised. No, not even a, not even a little bit. Um, I mean, my foundation has been the recipient of that generosity for almost two years now. So whenever, so this group that I have on Facebook, every time I put out a request for some help and it's not, it's never monetary except for the GoFundMe. Um, It's always help with, you know, help a senior get to their eye doctor appointment because they can't see well, or, you know, people always step up. It's incredible. I've never had to, I've never had to turn anybody down who needed help. Um, Again, I think people just, they, they like to help others, not just at the holidays, but all year long. And having, having that opportunity through, in this case, North Van Cares, seeing that people need help and where they need help and having that opportunity is great. But I think also um, we're really grassroots, so we don't have a bureaucracy. If, if somebody calls me today... I can that needs help tomorrow, I can get them help tomorrow. Whereas if they were to call an organization that is, you know, um, set up for, let's say, seniors within the community, most of the time that requires, a, you know, filling in a form or, or having to wait a couple of days or weeks or months for the help that they need. We're, we're just not like that. I wanted everything to be very nimble in its ability to act. And so we've stayed that way. Yeah, Simi, so 
so cool. So her page, North Van Cares, uh, it's like so simple. People just post what they need and other people respond. And you go through these posts and it's like people can't wait to help. And I think it's, you know, again, very grassroots as she mentions there. And she also has like a bigger picture on what it takes to get someone to donate, to help out. Because most people are good. Most people want to help out. But how many of us actually take that extra step? The reason people donate to something is because it affects them personally. So the reason that um, the Cancer Society raises so much money is because so many people have been affected by cancer or um, have had a friend or family member affected by cancer. In the case of something close to home, like the stabbings at Lynn Valley, everybody who lives in North Van has been to Lynn Valley Mall and wandered through that little area, which is where uh, Brown's and the library is. And, And it's very nice. It's very lovely there. And have somebody come in and um, take that away. The community they they needed a they needed a way to take it back. She said that bit there. The community needed a way to take it back after something horrible had happened, and I think that resonated with so mm-hmm. many people in North Van, which is why people donated um, in huge ways during uh, the pandemic uh, in North Van, and then also during this that awful knife attack. People just really showed up for one another. They really did, and it was so remarkable. And I've always thought it must be a lot of work too, because like you do this in the moment, you say I'm going to help out, and then think about how long now she's had to continue on with with helping out. Yeah, I mean, people always need help, right? Like we show up for each other in times of crisis. But uh, you know, even when I'm thinking about what's happening in Abbotsford, like people. Farmers have continued to show up, even when the the news teams will leave and, you know, the remnants of the flood are in the past, people will still show up for their neighbors. And that's what's really required. We, during these times, like, you know, we're passing along season's greetings to one another so easily. I think it's so important to think about, like, just the small ways that we can help out uh, in our communities. That is so true. So GoFundMe is a great way to do that too. So North of Vancouver was the, what is it? The most generous. The most generous How? city in all of Canada. Kelowna was up there. Simi Kamloops was close too. Um, but uh, yeah, North Van took the acknowledgement. They wouldn't announce how much in total North Vancouver residents donated, um, but they had some really big campaigns, like over uh, several of them were over $100,000. Nice. I'm just looking at the list. One, two, three, four, five, six out of the top 10 are in BC. So good for BC on that one. Thanks, (laughs) Raji. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. We have been talking this morning about the fact that the University of Victoria is cancelling all in-person exams. That starts today. So they are moving those online. And the reason they're doing that, well, is a concerning rise they see happening in COVID-19 cases. So how are they going to handle all of this? What led them to do this? Well, we're going to talk about that right now with a couple of different guests. We have the co-chairs of the UVic COVID-19 transition team, Susan Lewis and Kane Kilby, who are with us. Thank you to both of you for being here. Thanks. Pleased to be here. Thanks for having us. Now, Susan, let me start with you here. When did you first realize that something had to change? 
Well, I think um, we were seeing a trend in our uh, cases uh, among uh, UVic students uh, through the course of, of last week. Um, and I think, uh, you know, over the weekend, uh, we realized that, um, you know, proceeding with in-person exams, you know, where we have 800 plus students in a gym for three hours at a time, and then we move another 800 students in for another three hours, and then yet another over the course of a day, um, we realized, uh, you know, in consultation with our island health team that we needed uh, a different approach uh, and we needed to move away from having in-person exams altogether. So it's a, it's, you know, a trend we were seeing um, in our cases over the course of last week, but uh, things, uh, I think, really got to a, to a point uh, uh, through the weekend where we realized we needed to make a, a very uh, a quick move to ensure the health and safety of our community. Right. And can, can you give us an idea what kind of, of guidelines have been in place so far this school year? Yeah, we've been following um, all of the um, public health guidelines that have been placed for um, post-secondary education in British Columbia at every stage of the pandemic. And so really uh, on campus, we've welcomed about 22,000 students um, to a very safe situation. In fact, this might be the safest place to be in the city um, because of those guidelines. Um, people are required to mask in all indoor areas. They're required to do a daily health check. Um, they've declared their vaccination status. In fact, what we've learned is that over 98% of our students are vaccinated. And of those students that are living on campus, 99.5% of them are fully vaccinated. And our employees are 98.5% vaccinated. And so they've done everything we could possibly ask of them to ensure a safe return this fall, especially on campus. And they're following all of the health and safety measures necessary. Right. So then, Susan, look what happened. As, as Kane pointed out, you've got all these restrictions and measures in place. Why the rising number of cases, do you think? Well, I think that would be a, a question for, for Island Health. I, we're just responding to, to the fact that there are uh, rising cases. And the particular um, circumstances of an in-person exam where we have uh, large, large numbers of students, uh, students from different programs, different faculties who, who haven't been in, in lecture halls together before. Uh, and with the, uh, I think, anxiety uh, around assessments, uh, we were receiving uh, dozens of emails from students wondering uh, what, you know, whether they should go to their exam on Monday. Um, so we really wanted to <laughs> provide some stability for the rest of the exam period. And we wanted to avoid uh, a half measure, you know, only looking at the, the big exams. Um, you know, there are similar concerns if you've got 40 students taking an exam in a smaller room. So we wanted to come up with an approach that would address all of our uh, remaining in-person exams and to give instructors some latitude in terms of offering a different kind of assessment and to support them if they did want to move the exam online, we have a team of uh, a support team in place to help them do that. Right. Was that a team that you've had ready to make this change? Because I imagine you can't just kind of do this on a dime. Uh, yes, we, we have a, a, a excellent team through our Learning, Teaching, uh, Support and Innovation Center uh, that has been working uh, tirelessly since the beginning of the pandemic to help with our move to online learning last year and then our ongoing uh, technology integrated learning this year. So we're fortunate we've got uh, a team in place to support our instructors with this. Kane, will anything change moving forward now? You, you're looking after the health and safety guidelines with what you've got in place. Will anything else be tweaked for people who remain on campus? 
Yeah, we'll take a few other precautionary measures just as we finish out the exam period. Um, these are really simple things that we can do, and I think they'll be effective, including, you know, postponing social events on campus, moving, you know, um, requiring people to wear masks at all times in our study areas, in our libraries. You know, we'll move some of our retail food outlets to take out service primarily as well, and those things will all help. Um, I think, if, you know, like the, the, the events of uh, the last week really have served as a, a reminder to all of us, especially as we enter the holiday season, that those indoor social gatherings where there are few or no COVID controls in place can really lead to the transmission of COVID-19, even among vaccinated people. And you heard Dr. Conway speak about that on the news five minutes ago. Like that's the lesson to take away from all of this. So then is that the web message that you're getting out to students is that, you know, you may have been having some fun off campus, things that had nothing to do with the university. It's time to start paying attention again. They've been really great on campus and they're just doing things that naturally occur with students at the end of the year. They're blowing off a bit of steam. They're celebrating the end of a successful varsity season or school year. Um, but I think it's what we've learned is that even in social settings, that uh, if, if those measures aren't in place, then COVID-19 can be transmissible. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for being here this morning to talk about that. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate your time. That's Susan Lewis, who is the acting vice provost for UVic and the co-chair of the UVic COVID-19 transition team, and Kane Kilby, who's the associate vice president of human resources at UVic, also co-chair of that transition team and was talking about the health and safety guidelines. So their concern there, as you heard, University of Victoria canceling all in-person exams. And when you think about like first year university, I think that's that's a big room with hundreds upon hundreds of people taking an exam together. So obviously that became a concern. As Susan said, they were getting emails and questions from students saying, are we still doing this? They know there has been an increasing and concerning uh, number of cases of COVID-19. Now, again, that's something that the Island Health Authority is also going to have to discuss. And I'm sure that, you know, we'll hear more from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix about that. But it does beg the question about what other universities are going to be doing. We know Queen's University in Ontario has done the same thing, moved everything online. They've had a concerning high number of cases as well. Well, what about other institutions here in BC? Will they look at or are they considering the same thing? And if students are going to be students and they're going to socialize, as we heard that that has been happening at the University of Victoria, hasn't that been happening at other universities as well? And how are those schools dealing with that? So as you can tell, there are a lot of questions about that still to come. So we will have the latest for you. We spoke to Dr. Brian Conway on the show a little over an hour ago. And he did also mention that he would like to see a bit more of a response, you know, from health officials, but a reminder as well to people out there that, hey, we still have restrictions in place here in British Columbia. Uh, we are not just like a free for all, everything back to normal. We do still have mask mandates. We do have, you know, gathering restrictions, all of that kind of stuff. Maybe people have gotten a little bit lax. The point today was also to talk to some of these health officials to kind of remind people of where we are at. And uh, if you'd forgotten about that, gotten a little lax with the restrictions, good time to brush up on those once again. Maybe dust the mask off, wear it a little bit more, you know, carefully, because I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the days ahead. Now, let's right now. Let's give something away. It's Monday. I think we need a little boost, right? Maybe the news has been a bit of a downer. 